on this week's show, discussing machine learning and applied analytics and construction with David Jun from Olson Consulting. In this week's news, AU 2022, security concerns, acquisitions, and more. Construction is the world's oldest industry, but spends the least amount of money on innovation. When we realized people outside the construction industry didn't typically associate construction with technology, like virtual reality, apps, and robotics, we started the Contact Crew. Each week, we bring our listeners the latest in contact news and interview the minds behind the technological innovations changing the way we build. So strap in, enjoy the ride, and geek out. It's Contact Crew time. We're back, and I got another group with me this morning. My good friend Nathan Wood from the CPC and Spectrum AEC, and in Colorado. How you doing, man? You loving that that those bright colors we got going right now? Good to be back. Well, up there, it's it's cold and gloomy down here. It's it's amazing how much the difference in uh, weather can be with you know five thousand feet elevation. Yeah, man, it is glorious. I actually just talked to uh, Jason Saunders, our uh, solutions engineer over, or solution, yeah, solutions engineer over here at Join, and he's heading up into the mountains. He's down by you, and he's like, "I got to get out of this doom and gloom. Let's let's go up and see some yellows." So, and hey, a little hello to Aaron. Uh, Aaron's up here today. Crowbans is up here today uh, in the mountains as well. So, say hello to him. Anything else kicking, man? What do you got planned for the weekend? Oh man. Uh family stuff just uh hanging around actually uh, heading down to austin texas i'm um, gonna hopefully see if any austin folks uh, reach out i'll be around through tuesday um and uh doing some family stuff down there brother-in-law's getting married so should be fun oh. and then uh and then back here for uh csi uh national is uh here in denver next week hey i'll be there with you man all right so, well, i'll be out. at csi man i got one of them early morning ones thanks a lot hugh seaton i'll see you down there but uh for all you early risers get your butts up early and come and see me i'm doing a talk on target value design in the morning we'd love to see you but let's get on you know we got david here david how are you man where are you coming to us from yeah not too bad coming from uh, calgary alberta up in canada and so pretty much it's a mix of the colorado and the texas of canada and so yeah, got a little of everything going on here. <laughs> oh man, you're my kind of guy. My wife's from Texas, you know, I'm from oh, Colorado, yeah. and it's best of both worlds. Oh, best of both worlds. Yeah, we got the stampede in the summer, so a lot of cowboy wannabes, and then we got the mountains just an hour away, and so you can just ski all all winter long. That's awesome. Yeah, well, hey, it's awesome, and David's going to be a fun one. This was, uh, I mean, I was excited to meet David and and bring him on. So we'll get into it. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. But before we do, let's talk about the cause of the show. As you know, we've changed this up a little bit, so I'm going to read you a little bit of what we call a tool tip. It's time to listen to understand, not to reply. If someone is struggling is opening up to you, you have an opportunity to build connection through active listening. No one likes a listener who is only thinking about how they're going to reply but isn't internalizing anything being said. Pay attention to the details of what the person struggling is saying. Watch your body language so you stay open to them. Don't interrupt. Repeat back to them the emotion and content of what they're saying, i.e., it has to be painful that you and your dad haven't spoken in years. Listening to understand allows for empathy and builds a platform of trust that makes it easier to point to resources. That comes from Paul Lawson, Project Controls Coordinator and Lead Mental Health Advocate from Mid-City Electric. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you to Cal Buyer. Thanks to everybody who's giving us this new uh, content. We'll have even more of it. Hey, if you need anything, 
you can always dial 988 from your mobile phone or text to get a resource. If you need others, stop by preventconstructionsuicide.com. Hey, the Google Voice line is back. None of you guys are hitting me up. What, you don't love me as much as everybody else? Hey, come on. It's 970-510-0675. Text me, text the crew. Who knows? You might be the one to get on the show. Before we get started with our guest interview, I spoke with Eris Dror, co-founder and CEO of Genda, about how they are providing real-time data on the job site for real-time decision-making. I'm here with Erez Dror, co-founder and CEO of Genda. I really want to know what problems does Genda solve for GCs right now? The main thing we provide or the main problem we solve is lack of visibility to what's going on on the project in the construction phase. So we mostly work with general contractors building high-rise projects, quite complex projects, many workers on site, many trades, lots of different locations. So we provide them real-time visibility to who is on site, where are they, and what are they doing. And we match that with if that's the right thing to do, like matching it with the schedule, information, to make sure they're on track. That's like a holy grail of understanding what's going on on a, on a massive commercial project like that. How's Genda going about doing that? So our way to do it is a mix of uh, BLE, small Bluetooth sensors. It's powered by a battery that lasts over three years, that requires no preparation, no maintenance, no electricity, no connectivity. We just... Throw it in the concrete, in the concrete slab, or attach it to the slab uh, from the bottom if it's not concrete. The combination of that and a smartphone app we provide to the people on site, that's what, how we generate the data. It provides value to everybody on site, including the workers. And that's how we onboard them very easily. And we're back. Okay. David Yun, how are you? Tell us a little bit about you. Uh, how you got here. You're currently a data scientist, but you're also what I would call like the poster child for a lot of what we've been talking about out there on your path to get to Olson Consulting and work in the construction industry. So give us a little background on who you are. Yeah, <clears throat> for sure. And so, yeah, my name's David. I've been working in the construction technology space for about almost two years now and came from a little bit of a different background. And so just a bit of my story is that I entered university. I had the dream of doing four years of biology, going straight to medical school, and then living the rest of my life out as a doctor. That didn't work out. So I did a year of biology, switched over into math, because I wanted to find something a bit more applied, a bit more tangible that wasn't like, if I don't pass the MCAT, I'm screwed. And so, yeah, we switched into mathematics, did that for a year, and then really found my place in statistics. And so really just learning how numbers and all these different theories and applications actually come together to provide some sort of understanding of the world or industry that you're working in. And so I did a statistics major, and then from there applied to go to a master's of public health and epidemiology in the States. COVID happened, didn't really feel like paying 50 grand a year for an online education, sitting in my room. And so I decided to actually pivot into something of more applied on the statistics side. And so that's where I found machine learning. And so I took an online course with MIT, actually applying uh, machine learning AI to business strategy and being able to develop and identify ROI opportunities. From there, I also took my own coding, coding course offered through IBM of their data science major. And so really just learned how to do some basic data processing, building models, evaluating that, actually just learned the tangible skills to apply what I learned in school and in that online course to an actual industry case. From there, I worked as a machine learning um, engineering intern at a company called AltaML. They're an Alberta-based startup specializing in pure play 
machine learning AI consulting. And so I worked with a renewable company here in Calgary, building out a ice turbine wind prediction model, essentially predicting the probability of ice, you know, one to six hours in the future. Got that through a proof of concept. And then since there, I've been working at Olson Consulting as a data scientist kind of slash consultant. And so really doing all things from um, optimizing your reporting to building financials, to doing data right back into ERP system, custom triggers right back. Really all things um, process related within your ERP. Our company specializes in just taking that to the next level. But really, if you have issues with, you know, manual entry, we have tools in place where we can just, you know, automate that. We can automate your invoices, really just any problem that a client has. It's about understanding, breaking that down to the actual underlying root problem and then using the tools and softwares that we have in place, either identifying ones that currently exist or building our own integrations. And so we've done things yeah. like build the first like DocuSign integration, right? And being able to use ro robotic process automation to process unapproved invoices. Really just that's where the foundation is and we're just building out our team from there. That's awesome. And I want to take a step back through that journey because, you know, when I mm -hmm. say you sound like a poster child to us of like, let's get outside of our industry and get folks who've, you know, learned through other spaces. So originally mm -hmm. you were looking at epidemiology and going mm -hmm. down that route. And I think you were, you were pretty focused on that even when you came out of, of the online learning courses, et cetera, mm -hmm. and, and then pivoted. Now, what has the view from, you know, even wind turbines is very different. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, we had a great conversation about this and when he's talking about wind turbines and predicting ice and ice buildup, it's pretty interesting piece to to understand what you were trying to do there but take a dive into it. it you weren't like trying to create data you were trying to use current data that already existed right mm -hmm. oh yeah for sure yeah and so really the where the problem came out of was that on these wind turbine sites you have these turbines spinning like you know up to like 70 100 like kilometers per hour and what they found was that as, as ice would build up on these wind turbine blades, first off, you know, it would just reduce performance because you have all this ice, you can't capture the wind energy as efficiently, right? But another issue that they had actually was that when enough ice built up actually on these wind turbines, they would potentially fly off, right? And they've actually hit a couple of buildings, hit a couple of cars, haven't hit a person yet, but it's really one of those situations where, you know, the more you understand, the more that you can use the data that you currently have, there's a lot of risk mitigation opportunities where you can just be safer in your operations, right? Really, that problem came from, hey, we're recording all this data. We have all these turbines measuring 24-7. We have gigabytes and terabytes of data. What do we do with it, right? And I think kind of the conversation that sparked this um, investigation was, well, what's a real ROI case? What's a use case, right? Not starting from the point of view where we can apply machine learning to anything, but more so, what problems do you have? What outcomes are you trying to achieve? And do you have the data in place to actually get that going all the way through? Because I think at times there's a really big temptation to just say, hey, you know what? Let's use machine learning. Let's use AI. It's the new cool thing out there. And let's just throw whatever we can at it. Whereas really the real return on investment is when you have a tangible problem that you're trying to solve or you have attempted to solve that you can actually measure a baseline to and say, hey, this machine learning approach works X times better than this for these reasons versus, oh, yeah, we just applied it and we think it works. Yeah, you're right. It's like it's, it's your business one. Go ahead, Nathan. Well, yeah, let's take a step back because I, I get this question a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. wh what is AI? What is ML fr from mm -hmm. industry folks? And, and I, I do my best 
you know, with more years of industry and way less in ML and AI to explain. Yeah. But as someone who has has enough experience in, in construction to, you know, I think two years is about the limit where you feel like you can speak the language a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how would you explain to an industry person yeah. what, what is ML versus mm -hmm. what is AI and, mm -hmm. and how are they working together with, with that use case? Or is there a specific use case that you found mm -hmm. resonates with that audience? Yeah, no, for sure. And so I think there's um, a bit of a temptation and I, I fall into temptation all the time because it sounds cooler where you just group together machine learning and AI as if they're one thing. Really, there's a slight distinction and that really had just kind of has to do with the complexity of the problem. And so, for example, with machine learning, the way that I would explain machine learning to just kind of any person that I'm talking to really is, you know, using computer science based models with statistics to actually identify patterns in your data. And so, you know, talking to like my other like technical friends, that's how I explain it. But really what machine learning is, is that you have data, you have a whole bunch of information and you're able to feed that into a machine learning model and identify patterns that come out of it. And so one example of a machine learning problem that we've solved in the past with our company, Olson Consulting, is that we have an oil and gas client here in Calgary. Essentially, they have a well site where they're pumping gas out the ground. They have about eight to 10 wells, two test separators. So really only two measurements going on at any given point in time, and there's you know, six to eight unknowns. And so really the biggest problem with that is that they need to stay within environmental and erosional safety limits. And so essentially it's like they can only pump out, you know, maybe 100 barrels per hour, right? If you ex exceed that 100 barrels per hour, then what happens is that you mess with the erosion, you mess with the piping itself. And if that goes on long enough, it could lead to a spill out, right? It's a really high cost of error. And so what the, what the company wanted to do was explore, hey, can we use machine learning to fill in that gap? Because right now they're looking at one, you know, one pressure variable. And that pressure variable fluctuates a lot over time. And so they're actually, you know, they're staying within safety limits, but they end up shutting down a lot because they don't know if they're operating safely. And so it's really that trade-off between, you know, can you operate and optimize your operations? And can you make sure you stay within those erosional safety limits as well? And so what we've done is that, you know, we have a, like, you know, millions of rows of historical data on like your temperature, your pressure, your choke valve configuration, other factors too. And we can say, hey, we have all those inputs. We have the measured flow rate for some wells at a certain point in time as our output. Can we build a relationship between those temperature, pressure, choke valve configurations with the actual flow rate? And so what we found is that, you know, over the three phases of our investigation, we found that, yes, there is a relationship. That relationship is backed to a certain degree by the engineering and subject matter experts' knowledge. And on top of that, too, when we implement this, we can actually implement this model in real time. And so it's not so much of like a look back into history, but it's more so right now at this point in time, where does the data suggest that we are in our, you know, in our flow rate and, you know, in our actual well site operations. And so really at the end of that project, we had two, um, two problems I tried to solve. First off, can we let you know when we are exceeding that limit? And also... Are there ways that we can reduce the amount of unnecessary shutdowns? And so again, going back to that risk mitigation, revenue optimization type of problem, and we found that with this real-time model running 24-7, feeding right back into the database, that we can reliably predict the flow rate coming out the ground given the inputs that we have. And so that's more on the machine learning side of things, I'd say, where it's really like, yeah, you have a tangible input, you have a tangible output, you have data, and you have a subject matter expertise, and really putting the two together to actually solve a problem. And then I'd say on the more um, artificial intelligence side, that's kind of where we get into like, you know, like Terminator and like Skynet and Matrix, where it's like, you know, like, can we like, can they have consciousness? Can they think, can they actually have more of a like, um, 
flexible framework than just solving a problem of inputs and outputs. Is it can they actually understand relationships even between these types of problems, right? And so there's a lot of research going on in the actual applied um, artificial intelligence side of things where it's like, yeah, like things like GPT-3, you know, GPT-4, like natural language processing type of models where it's really like getting away from, again, that structured type of problem solving and definition into something a bit more general, I'd say would be the distinction there. Yeah, I, I've, I really like that. I- the definition. Nathan, do you have something else there? Well, well I mean, I, I kind of want to dig into that a little bit because you said some really interesting points there about like measured mm-hmm. versus unknown constraints. And yeah. and this idea of like both whether it's the windmill or the wind turbine example and weather, two you yeah. know, known measure, measured, you know, repeatable constraints. Even though weather is unpredictable, it is still yeah. like it is modeled, yeah. right? Way better. Oh, for sure. It's, it's actually mm-hmm. yeah, like weather, we can have a whole another podcast just on <laughs> weather predictability and yeah, first level and second level chaos. And but but both examples, you know, I think what makes construction unique is that it, it, with the very little exception of oil well, you know, and even that's really oil well construction. Uh, operations yeah. is where you get those measured inputs and the measured outputs. The construction part is is probably less so, and mm-hmm. and in the wind farm as well, it's like modeling the use of it. So mm-hmm. as we take that idea and try and move that into the construction phase, and like mm-hmm. if someone was asking a question on uh, Otis Big Room earlier about um, uh, Alice and Alice Technologies, and, and that it being essentially you know a machine learning for yeah. your building schedule, and yeah. it's like it. Is it really, or or like, or how far away are we from that? Because you know we have these examples in manufacturing where it works, mm-hmm. but I at least personally haven't found an example where we are successfully achieving it in construction. And yeah. ho- hopefully, you can convince me, yeah, that there, that there is something, or, or maybe we can you know talk about why why that is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. No, I think it really comes down to how you define the problem too, right? Yeah. I think something like you know you did like you just brought up where you're able to schedule out like your building process and say you know at this stage using machine learning I'll be at this sort of construction level or this you know this stage done. I think that's almost a bit tougher to answer that question because again like you said it has to do with kind of unknown constraints right you know who's your labor who's working you know what's the weather like what are other factors that would actually impact something like building a building right. Whereas I think some other problems that you could potentially solve using machine learning kind of go outside the scope of something like that. For example, I was looking at this article here the other day about um, using machine learning and computer vision in sort of building compliance. And so let's say that like, you know, you're building a plant, right? And you have to have some sort of flame retardant material in the ceiling to make sure that if there was a fire breaking out, that it doesn't like, you know, actually spread throughout the plant. And so what I've heard actually in the past is that when they first tackled this project, because they didn't have any labeled data, they were like, okay, well, we don't really have anything to work off of. So we actually have to build our own data. And so what they did on this plant was that they had a robot go through the plant, taking pictures of all the ceilings and all the walls that would actually tell you where these cracks were. And then literally they'd have an engineer sit there with like a pen and paper on a computer drawing red boxes around areas that need to be fixed, right? They do this over a period of like six months to two years, and they finally have enough data. And what they actually ended up being able to do at the end of the day was say, okay, we have like the engineers labeled diagrams of where exactly these issues are. This is what the image looks like. Now feed it through this computer vision model. And now in the future, all you have to do is have a robot go through your plan taking pictures, and they can identify those cracks where there are issues, right? And so I think, again, with machine learning, we kind of found this tendency of like, well, these are the problems that I know have been solved. And so that's all I'm going to really think about because that's all I'm kind of my context and what I'm working in, right? Whereas I think when you kind of take a step back, and I think this is where um, coming from a different industry really plays to your benefit, is that you're not 
you don't have any bias, right? You don't say like, oh, in this industry, I've done it this way. And so when I solve it again, I'm going to solve it the exact same way, right? Whereas in reality, when you come from another industry, it's a very similar type of problem. Because really at the end of the day, it's almost like in the, again, in like the compliance example, it's a classification. Are you safe or are you not, right? But what makes that problem different than let's say a health problem where it's like, do you have this disease or not, right? It's the context you're working in is different, but the underlying problem is very similar where it's, you know, what are the distinguishing characteristics of this data set that let me know when you're in class A or in class B, right? And so I think that's um, really interesting kind of question to kind of tackle where it's like, yeah, you know, how much does knowledge transfer over? And in my experience, kind of working in a bit of the health space, working in the research space, working in the construction, renewable space as well, and oil and gas too. It's, again, same underlying problem of, you know, is it a classification? Are they, am I predicting class A, class B? Is it a regression? Am I predicting a number value, right? Is it a clustering? Am I trying to separate this, these data into different groups? Same type of problem, obviously a different subject matter that you're working in. So you have to rely, rely on those subject matter experts even more. But again, same underlying question that kind of leads me to think, well, yeah, no, you should be getting people from other industries kind of working in other industries, because again, you're able to see those patterns and dots that you haven't seen before. And one like real, like tangible example that I can kind of think of is like, I was helping my cousin out with math and, you know, math major, I know what I'm doing, right? And it's like really basic multiplication. And then she's like, well, have you thought about doing it this way? And she's like, what, like nine, 10? And I was like, no, like, why would you even like bring that up to me? Like, you know, I'm a math major, right? And then I tried it out and it was actually easier. <laughs> so it's kind of like, <laughs> really like the bar is pretty low, but it's, you know, you can learn from any experience, right? Because again, as long as the underlying problem is the same, you have the data to support it, you're able to build out a reasonable use case, then yeah, you know, you can really, really benefit from coming from other industries because you don't have that bias like I do with my math. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you nailed it, man. That is, that is a really good, uh, you know, I have to ask my, my, both my kids teachers for how they teach so I can look at it. Cause it's not how I learned it, yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, hey, wait, I don't like this. And then I'm like, wait, this kind of is more efficient. Shoot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, we might do it that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to unpack a couple of things there and I want to go to the Alice thing, Nathan. I think one of the things with Alice is, is like, we also have to look at the quality of what we're looking for or what we're trying to get to right in the flow rate explanation that David was talking about. We really need some very specific things, but we have a, a real good tight set of data that can that can give us that output because it's a it's a minimal threshold. I'm just going to be honest, we're horrible at scheduling in construction. So we don't need to get exact, we just need to get a heck of a lot better. So in that <laughs> respect, Alice has a ton of historical information. They have a ton of unknown of known outputs on types, on sizes, on square footage, on per cost, per key, per bed all of those metrics that it can at least say, Hey, look, you always say that it's going to take us 18 months and it always takes you somewhere around 26. So mm -hmm. like you might want to lean that way. So that's the other part that people need to understand. I think with ML models is it's not about getting perfect. It's about getting better. Mm -hmm. And we can consistently use models to get us better along the way and apply them to what, you know, we're doing. And then as you apply those models and get success, you're going to get more specificity out, out of the input. So, you know, to me, that's there. And, and I'm going to go way, way back to the beginning of this conversation, David, David, where you said, you know, industries that have tons and tons and tons and tons of data. Sound like anybody we know? Construction has tons and tons and tons of data. <laughs> now, but I want to dispel a myth. Unreliable. Data. Not all data is created equal, is it? <laughs> what, what's your thought on that? Yeah, no, it's, 
Very true. And it's probably the biggest problem that I run into. And really, whenever I start any machine learning engagement, the first question I have to ask is, what's your data look like? Where is it stored? And, you know, can you trust that data? Because I think one, one really funny story I heard from one of my mentors one time is that they were starting off like in a machine learning engagement with another client. And then the client's like, oh, yeah, I got tons of data. No worries. Right. He sends over an Excel file. It's like 100 kilobytes. And it's like 25 rows of data. Right. And he's like, is this enough? And my my mentor was just like in the kindest way possible. No, I think you need about three, four more years of collecting data before you can start anything. Because really, there's nothing you can do with a hundred examples. And again, when I think about machine learning, kind of the, one of the ways that I explain it is that it's really like you're trying to teach a kid how to solve a problem. Because again, you give it data in, sorry, garbage in, garbage out. So saying a machine learning, and really what that kind of pertains mm -hmm. to is that you feed bad data into a machine learning model and you get bad results. And then people are like, you know, how does that work? What do you mean by that, right? And kind of the example I use is like, say again, if I'm teaching my niece one plus one equals three, and I give her a hundred examples of that, no matter how much she understands like the math fundamentals, if that's all the only example that she's seen and they're all incorrect, then when she goes on a test and says one plus one, oh, it equals three, David gave me a hundred examples of that, right? And that's what I think is true. And so really with machine learning, it's like that just really amped up because with machine learning, it's a bit, it's just extremely dependent on the underlying data, right? There's no validation. The model does not check if one plus one equals two or three. It just says, okay, this is the relationship. This is the input. This is the output. And so, yeah, you know, definitely not all data is created the same, depending on your examples. If you have things like outliers or missing data, and if you're not controlling or adjusting for those factors, then that machine learning model is just going to take that in as equal information. And so even though all data is not created the same in the eyes of machine learning and the model itself, they are all weighted equally. And so you have to be very careful that what you're feeding into the model is actually representative of what comes out of it. And this kind of comes into the question of, you know, like, does your model account for trends? So, for example, let's say I'm building a forecasting tool for sales and, you know, I have data from, let's say, January to, you know, October, right? And, but I have no data on the busy seasons like Christmas and Boxing Day and all that. Then when I build out my forecasting tool, we, they don't know that it's going to increase in November, December, just because of seasons, like seasons, right? And it's holidays and all that. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of have to make sure that your data is like, you know, it's complete, that it exists and that it actually is representative of what goes on in reality. Because, you know, if it's not complete or exists, then it's really like you don't have a full grasp of the context of the problem that you're trying to solve. You know, how can you expect the machine learning model to just learn that on its own when the only thing that you're giving it is the data itself? That's a that's a great way to break it down. I like the one plus one equals three. I mean, except, you know, maybe your niece and Jerry Jones, nobody else gets one plus one equals three. So, um, <laughs> but that's... <laughs> It is. You're feeding it. Yes, I went there. You're feeding it garbage. I had to go there. You said one plus one equals three. And all I could think of is all the sports shows talking about Jerry Jones saying, in my world, one plus one has to equal three. And I'm like, well, <laughs> let's not let's not build any ML models off of you. <laughs> but I think there's a, you know, and to, and to go to your point, like you got the, the hundred rows, thousand rows from the one. And then I know we talked pre-show about your oil and gas. And that was like 15 gigs of information of data coming mm -hmm. in, you know, in, in, in rows. So if somebody's sitting out there and they're, and they're trying to just figure out like, wh what's my first step? Like if you mm -hmm. had, you know, you're a construction company, a lot of them have been, and I, and I know this, I mean, I, this came from some of our own conversations and conversations I have all the time. It's like, we're sitting on all this. Mm -hmm. Where do we start? What, mm -hmm. what would they start with? I mean, you're, you're, you're a data scientist. Mm -hmm. um, we're excited to have the story of your history and, and background and, and to have the lack of 
even Nathan and I are jaded now, right? Like we, <laughs> we can't not be. Um, even though we try real hard, you're. I'm trying to be nice with my questions and not just like completely cut David at the knees because <laughs> this industry is so messed up. And it's like, I'm sorry, man. You can't. You can't help us. You can't oh, help us. We're, we're too far gone. Eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did get out while you can. Yeah. Go back to manufacturing. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I know, but I'm trying to bring people into this industry, man. Don't scare them away. No, I, I, I can, I can, re- I can I come back from that because no, my question actually, I, I wrote this question down, so I apologize, Jeff. It's not in our show notes, but can can machine learning help? Because uh, our problem is bad data, right? It is mm-hmm. this like we keep just skipping over, like oh, if we fix the data problem, look at all these cool things we can do. It's like mm-hmm. no, we still have this data problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So can machine learning help us with our data? problem like can mm-hmm. machine learning actually clean up our data so that you can do machine learning right because you need clean data to do machine learning but can you mm-hmm. apply machine learning to help us with our bad data or at least identify it mm-hmm. yeah that's actually a really interesting question and so i'll actually you know, ask you a follow-up before i answer that is you know besides just like bad quality data kind of what other data problems are you trying to get at well it's it's the difference because they have different root causes right it could be yeah. i fat fingered something and, and missed one letter. It could be, yeah. I actually stated something wrong uh, mm-hmm. maliciously or something like that. You'd, that you'd want yeah. to flag as well. Mm-hmm. So it could be all mm-hmm. different sorts of mm-hmm. uh, mistakes or discrepancies, but it's ultimately mm-hmm. the bad data that leads us to, you know, unknown schedule durations and all these other things, because it sort of gets all, all mucked up and nobody keeps track of all mm-hmm. those variations mm-hmm. as they happen. So it's, yeah, yeah. kind of, yeah, that's the, I'll give you that context. Yeah, no, for sure. So I think the very first problem of like data validation, you can use machine learning. And my question I'd ask back to you is, is it necessary? So for example, right, you know, some of the Excel integrations that we do with our um, construction ERP is that we do write back into their system, right? The only issue with the write back into the system is that it kind of bypasses some of the pop-ups and errors that you would see if you're actually typing it in yourself. And so what we have is you have a way to bypass that. But again, you're like, if you mistype something or if you misspell something, the system will catch it. But because we're kind of bypassing that, then and, you know, it doesn't catch it itself exactly. And so what we do with our data validation is either, you know, we have a drop down, And so you really can't mess it up because you're really just like clicking arrow mm-hmm. and you're clicking a box and you kind of go from there. Or we have some sort of other checks built in that don't really require machine learning, right? So for example, if you're doing like a, an, um, it's called a cost estimate for a job, some mm-hmm. project managers just type in time and materials, right? And it's like, that's my estimate. It's just however long it takes, right? Whereas, you know, to actually go through your process and to actually have a good estimate, actually know how the cash is flowing, you need to have an actual dollar value, right? And so again, something as simple as you need to enter a dollar value in here doesn't require machine learning, but it really improves the quality of data because you're essentially controlling what can be entered into the system, right? You can't enter a negative bid amount. Maybe it's on fat fingered in, but again, it's like you can have something else in check that's very logic based that you don't necessarily need machine learning for. But on the other hand, kind of to answer your second question there, I really do think there is potential for machine learning in those types of like outlier detection, anomaly detection, kind of like fraud detection space as well. Because I think um, with machine learning, you can really break it up into something called supervised and unsupervised. And so supervised machine learning would be something like, again, a classification or regression problem where you have a specific output that you're trying to predict. For example, again, like flow rate out the ground or classification of a disease or, you know, where you think your revenue will be. Those are all class um, supervised learning type of problems because you have examples in the past that can actually tell you, hey, 
this is what we expect. And so, you know, predict that number specifically. Whereas there's another realm called unsupervised machine learning, where you get into kind of the clustering type of algorithms. And those tell you, you know, in general, these are the different groupings that we see of this piece of data. For example, like an invoice, this is what we expect a standard invoice to look like, right? And so, for example, let's say there's a bad party or someone mistakenly adds the extra couple of zeros to that amount, then it's, oh, like this falls out the realm of what we expect. Hey, check this out. So you work in more of an exception-based manner where you're able to mm -hmm. see what, yep. you know, what yes. examples you see in the past. It's not necessarily labeled because you're not going to say, hey, this is a good invoice, this is a bad invoice because you assume they're all good invoices. But if you're able to build subcategories of, you know, this is like invoice type A, type B, type C, oh, this invoice over here doesn't fall into any of these categories. Is that something that's supposed to happen? Like, oh, maybe a smaller company all of a sudden landed a really huge bid and they're able to work on this in a multi-million dollar project. Or is it that there's something else going on, right? And so it's mm -hmm. going to solve that data problem a little bit by working in a more exception-based manner. And so you can yeah. look at cases that stand out versus having to go through every single case as a human and evaluate if this makes sense or that makes sense. So would you define those exception rules as machine learning or it's something that's before machine learning? I'd say that's an outcome of machine learning, right? Because again, oh. let's say you have these like 10 pieces of data, nine of them fit in one category, one of them is separate. That identification of that one example case there, that would be the result of using machine learning analytics on those pieces of data. Fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's just me and David having a conversation over here. I don't know who else yeah. is listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think one more interesting thing that kind of came out of this whole kind of um, investigation on my own here was that they have these things called auto machine learning tools. And so that's really, um, when you think of that generally, it's about machine learning models. And so you can think of a model as a different way to learn. And so different models have different strengths, different weaknesses than others in terms of prediction. But those are all kind of have to do with like, hey, I'm going to pick like, you can think of it almost as like you're picking out a car. If I have like, you know, 10 people in my family, I'm probably going to go for one of those like white, like stalker vans. Whereas if it's just like me and my dog, I'm probably going to get a sports car, right? And so different, um, what's it called? Different purposes for different models, kind of mm -hmm. like how you're picking a car. And so they have tools in place where you can actually feed um, data into this auto machine learning. And then what it'll do is say, this is the output I want. Let me test out 70 different combinations of models, right? And so that's more on the model development side. But even they're finding on the data processing and kind of the data um, quality side too, they're actually are able to use these auto machine learning tools in place where it's like, hey, let me try 50 different ways to, um, to fill in missing values. Let me try these other ways to actually process the data to transform it the way I need it to. And so you actually see that some of these machine learning tools are able to pick up on those data quality items without explicitly giving it that problem. Because if you give it kind of the um, core problem of optimize and solve this problem the best way possible, it'll find the best ways to process and clean your data to solve that problem, which kind of in hand, if you're able to work backwards from that, gives you indications into data quality. Like if you're moving a lot of missing values, well, yeah, maybe mm -hmm. you should deal with the missing values in your data, right? If you're missing with a lot of like outlier data or data that's kind of misrecorded, Things like, you know, your temperature being over 100 degrees Celsius, if it's like, you know, liquid, then it's like, okay, well, maybe there's something else going on here that doesn't have to do with the data itself, but has to do with maybe like a sensor on your site that you have to deal with that this machine learning model is kind of able to indicate for you 
that, that that's an issue. Yeah. And if the source is not your company, because that, yeah. that's our problem in our industry is the source is not your company. So I, you, mm-hmm. I think you perfectly articulated exactly the machine learning model that we would need to check before acceptance of mm-hmm. a document, of a file or whatever, that what's in there is correct. Well, so yeah, that, that was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. You have a couple of things there, right? You have check before acceptance, Nathan, but the other thing we can do, and this has been one of the cruxes of technology adoption and the use cases of technology is those David could also call out like, look through your stack and figure out where that data is being generated and how you can then go apply those same things you were talking about. Like, Hey, mm-hmm. if, if, if it's changing it from a manual ent- entry space to a dropdown to solve mm-hmm. the problem, like you can identify, or maybe, and I will be completely honest here and some people won't like this. Maybe it's that the application that is being utilized to generate that is not worth what it's giving you. Mm-hmm. And you have to look at re-identifying it. This was, you know, to your point earlier, Nathan, you know, this problem has existed in our world forever. And even systems that came around to try to, to deal with it couldn't because it was like percent completes. Well, how many times were we just percent complete where we were supposed to be based on how we know where we're supposed to be? And then all of a sudden you're like, well, we're really not there. Yeah. Right. And then, and then all of a sudden we were like, okay, well, we'll take our ERP systems and we'll take this and we'll go there. And it's like, and then this number will generate from there. And it's like, yeah, well, they still know how to fudge it. Like Mm -hmm. they just know how to fudge it in a different place now. And, and. And we still get bit. So what are, yeah, what are the acceptable places to fudge and then the not acceptable places to fudge and then use right. machine learning and that checking as a gateway between the two? And that's why you have people, you know, coming out with like Struction Site and Open Space that are using that, that computer vision to give that percent complete number back to tie it up. That is a use case that wasn't driven by one single bad data point that they could see. It was driven by an industry problem around a, we were just bad at percent complete, you know, one, we were fudging, but that's actually not where I want to go with it. Cause I think most of the people in the business are honest. I just think, look, we're human. We overestimate everything. We're optimistic. The glass is always, when we think it's half full, it's probably a quarter full, right? Like, so some of this that David's talking about is overcoming our own inherent biases as humans that we want to continue to have. I want to continue to trust my friends. I want to continue to feel positive, but I need data and machine learning, et cetera, to tell me the reality of where we are, whether it's percent completes, whether it's profitability, et cetera. So um, I love it. We're getting close. David, you've taken us down a lot, a lot of roads. Where are the roads taking you for the future? Like, where are you excited to dig into the next set of either problems or technologies or future? Like, you can get out there and go. What are you thinking? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a loaded question. I mean, there's so much you can do because really, again, if you have the data and you're able to define a problem, you can really do anything. But one spot that I'm really interested to see pan out in the construction space, so I think the first one would be that percent complete problem using computer vision and BIM modeling. And I think another place that we could take it is actually one of my boss's moonshot projects of automated timesheet entry. And so I'll start with the first one where it kind of has to do with the um, BIM modeling. Really. Um, yeah, I guess the underlying problem is that, yeah, you know, when you're building a building, how do you know how far down completion you are, right? You can use your cost, you can use your projected units, you can look at a lot of different metrics to kind of estimate out your percent complete, depending on kind of what department you're working in or kind of what your context is in. But one really interesting way that I've seen kind of been explored in the past is using, again, like BIM 3D CAD models and 
pictures taken by drones or other robots on site. And you can actually compare the two. So let's say, and you're building a hospital and then it's like your first phase is to actually build out like, you know, the outer layer of whatever building, right? You can actually use computer vision and um, these actual photos to say, hey, my drone says that like this wall is this much complete from what I can see on the outside. This wall is that much complete. And so when I compare what I see in my pictures to what I see in that BIM model, I can actually kind of see, you know, how far down the line we are to complete in that building, even just looking on the external side of things, right? And so I think you can expand that out to get any construction project where if I'm building a bridge, take a picture of the bridge every day, right? And then you take enough pictures with enough different angles, and you can actually build a 3D model of what's being done on site, compare that to what the actual CAD model is saying needs to be done at completion, and you're able to kind of estimate that in a bit more automated, and another um, another lens of percent complete, right? Because really, even just looking at what's done on the outside, that's just one lens you can look at that problem, right? And then you use that to like your actual cost versus your projected, to your actual you know revenue versus projected. You add that in as another data point. That's only going to mm-hmm. give you better information to make decisions off of, right? And I think Jeff, kind of what you said earlier, like a couple minutes ago, really kind of hit home to me, where it's like, yeah, you know, we're not really trying to replace people with machine learning and, and like artificial intelligence. Like the goal isn't to just you know, offsource like 80% of our jobs to computer and say, hey, that's it, right? Because first off, that's not feasible because there's so many exceptions when you're working with people. But on top of that too, I think really the way that machine learning AI is supposed to be used is to actually augment your own intelligence decision-making. And so again, going back to the example, it's not to say, hey, we don't need estimators anymore. We don't need people in accounting to actually estimate this for us. And we just need this computer vision. No, it's like you use as a project manager, for example, you would use information from your accounting department. You'd, you'd, you'd use information from that modeling and say, hey, I have more data points now to tell me where I'm actually supposed to be versus just one number that I'm looking at that tells me, yes or no, I'm doing well, right? So I think yeah. that just really gives more context. I'm really excited to kind of see how that pans out because it's really intersection of software, civil engineering, construction, you know, statistics, machine learning. Yeah, it's just the, it's like the coming together of five or six different fields. That's just so exciting to see. And data cleanliness. I'll give you one more to add on top of that is the quality control mm-hmm. aspect of not just is the data right, mm-hmm. but did we build it the way we were supposed to build it? Yeah. So that same scan of how mm-hmm. far did you go? Did you go in yeah. the right way? And is it actually lined mm-hmm. up? Because you can notice a lot yeah. of issues and deviations before it costs you a lot more money later on. So like when you add oh, yeah. that value proposition to the mm-hmm. other value proposition you just, just brought up with the same tool mm-hmm. and the same workflow, you can actually get enough yeah. to get to that 10x value prop that people actually get off their ass and do something about it. <laughs> <laughs> so like we're we're very close, which is why we're all so excited, right? Oh, for sure. And again, and, th- and this is, yeah, very close. Yeah. And this is what I love about just kind of talking, discussing machine learning is that when people first start the conversation, it's like, oh, I heard it does this. I heard it does that. Right. But as soon as you get an understanding and have like, oh, like these are the other problems you can solve, just like you just did, Nathan. It's like, well, even like quality assurance. Right. And like, and like, is it built right? And then you can, have, I'm sure someone listening to this podcast would be like, oh, what about this? What about that? Mm-hmm. Or what about that? Right. And as long as you kind of feed that itch and try to discover and you know find opportunities to actually solve those problems the realm of what's possible just grows right because really when you think about machine learning it's been around theoretically for about the past 70 years there is like mm-hmm. a bit of like a machine learning like winter and like the 80s 90s where it's like nothing really developed but recently with like cloud computing with you know all this data storage with people just knowing that it's a possibility it's really expanded so much in the past five ten years right and again listening to podcasts like this having these conversations just opens up what's possible, opens up your imagination of like, can I do it, right? What do I need to actually put that in place? And it really just gets the ball rolling from there, right? Because, you know, as soon as one person starts doing it and makes a lot of money off of it, 
that's what everyone wants to do, right? And you want to jump on well, like sooner rather than later. Uh, and 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 I'm just sitting here thinking about it as you've gone through it, and and I've been watching this stuff and talking about it for a long time, and even I have new ideas now from from what we're talking about because all of mm. our heads change over time, and I'm just thinking about all the different sources of information that we're gathering, you know. You know, we, mm-hmm. we can look at like we had last week, we had Versatile on and, and Crane View mm-hmm. and, you know, looking at how things are going in when it's talking to precast and concrete and steel. And, you know, then you're looking at all the different ways that we take pictures and ingest pictures, whether they're coming into Procore mm-hmm. or whether you're getting them into, you know, build or whatever. And then, you know, we don't really talk about it because it, well, it's kind of an anchor to some folks, but you work in this space is the ERP business, right? Like our accounting system yeah. has quality data that's pretty hard to work with at times, but extrapolating from yeah. it can really provide a layer we don't have. Then you think about mm-hmm. BIM and then you think about things like new metrics. And to me, all the things we're trying to do with data go to, you said it, informed yeah. decision-making because we want people to be informed with data to make a good decision because they're great at it, especially in the construction business, right? Mm-hmm. We need to oh, create yeah. more certainty. We have no certainty and owners are dying for certainty, right? Risk mitigation. The model doesn't know what to do when the thing's about to hit the fan, keeping it, you know, the kids show here. But, you know, when the thing's about to hit the fan, what do we do? Well, risk mitigation and all the factors and all the things that have happened in the past that could predict where we can go can allow us to course correct at the right time. And that all Mm -hmm. leads to predictability around the construction process. And we just don't have it Mm -hmm. and we need it. I think you've covered a great way for us to continue to take where we were and where we're going. So I suggest everybody take a look. And Nathan, it looks like you got one more before I take us to news. Very quick. Yeah, because you, well, no, because you, David, you said the perfect point is what do I need to do that is a mindset shift from seeing a, a you know, a use case and going, oh, I need that. You know, that we're, we're an industry yeah. goes, oh, I need that and don't think we need to do mm-hmm. anything differently to get that. Like you, you just kind yeah. of, mm-hmm. you know, slip that in there, but that's a very important mindset shift that this industry needs of what do I need to do differently to get to that? And we'll leave with that. Mm-hmm. Right. And really in this industry, I think in any industry in general, where you're kind of exploring like, you know, the frontier of these new technologies that you really need a partnership, right? You don't want to be the company that throws like, Hey, I'll give you $2 million. I'll give you five years and get this done. Right. Like you really want to be involved in that process and decision-making really. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love working with my clients because really it, it's not so much, Hey, buy my product, buy my solution because it'll do this, this and that for you. It's more so like, where do you have deficiencies, right? Where do you want to improve and how can I help you get there? Right. And it becomes so much more of a conversational piece. And again, especially with these new technologies, it's like, yeah, I can take your word for it, but don't you want to be a part of the process? Right. Don't you want to be the one actually building this out with me and not just like, oh, 10 years, I'll give you like X amount of dollars. Right? It's like, no, like be a part of it. Right. Be a part of that movement, because really it's it's like first movers industry, I feel like. Right. You can get a good solution out the door and people love it. It's like everyone wants it. Right. And it's got to be there to do it. Yeah. And we should have given you that. You know, I'm, I'm horrible at that. But if you if people want to work with you and I got to thank John Olson, by the way, John Olson <laughs> connected us together. Um, and in fact, you jumped into the seat after we met really, really fast. So thanks to John for introducing us. And you work at Olson Consulting and, you know, mm-hmm. tell people just a quick bit about what Olson Consulting does and maybe where they can go find out more. Because at the end of this, I'm, you know, man, you guys are on it. I'm digging this. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So also consulting, we've been doing Vista by Viewpoint consulting for about the past, my boss has been doing it for about past like five, 10 years. And really in the past two years, he really started developing out his team. 
And so again, we kind of do everything from custom financial reporting to analytics, to dashboard creation, to ERP customization, right back into your system. Really, again, I kind of like alluded to this earlier, but it's not so much that we have like a set of products, which we do, but it's not really like, okay, we go to a company and say, hey, buy these 10 things because we know you need it. It's more so we work closely, understand your process, understand what you do on a day-to-day level and say, hey, where are some really high value areas where we can provide immediate value and improvement for you? And as we develop out that relationship, it becomes so much more of a collaborative exercise and more of a trusted technology advisor than I say consultant. Because really when my clients come to me, they literally, it's like, hey, I have this problem, right? You know, what can we do with it? What, what tools do you have? What can we develop together to actually solve this problem, right? And just taking that approach as a company has been such a breath of fresh air for me. Because when I'm working with my clients, I don't feel like I feel like a salesperson, right? I don't feel like I'm trying to just pitch something and get out the door. It's more so, yeah, how do I develop out this relationship to be mutually beneficial for the both of us? And so, yeah, no, we're always hiring. We kind of hired as a rolling basis, no like real schedule there. If you're interested in kind of working with data, working consulting, learning just how construction works at a more technical level, definitely give us a look. Our website's olsenconsulting.ca, O-L-S-E-N consulting.ca. That's awesome, man. I, it, it really is like, it, it's the future of where we can go with things. And, it, and I think you guys are, are becoming that real and you are, and Olson has been for a long time, but the trusted advisor. And I think, especially in our industry of construction, we want to buy from trusted advisors, not, mm-hmm. not from just sales folks. It's about going down the process, you know, all of us in the biz, that's kind of where we were. We were talking about it beforehand. You know, um, we're all here. We need to make money. We need to do things. But mm-hmm. ultimately, it's about pulling that rope in the right direction. So go check them out. Listen, it's been awesome. I wish we could go longer. But, you know, we got to get to that lovely news. Um, but before we get to the news, let's listen in on the second half of the conversation I had with Eris Drawer, co-founder and CEO of Genda. And I'm back with Eris Drawer, co-founder and CEO of Genda. What kind of data are you really giving to the general contractors that are using Genda? Mm-hmm. So it's all based on people on site and time spent. So we start with headcount. How many people do I have today? How many do I have from each trade? Then it, you can, we can dive into where are those trades working? In which level are they? In which unit are they? And then, it, as I mentioned, it's combined with the activities that they're doing. So it provides visibility to these are, the, we have three plumbers working on level 10 working on this specific activity from your schedule. Is it planned? Is it not planned? Um, if it's not planned, we flag that out uh, proactively so they can tell. In addition to that, we provide historical reports. We keep the data historically so they can use the data to understand real production rates so they can schedule better. They can use it for insurance, solving disputes. So we provide reliable, objective data. We creates a common ground to start the discussion, saves everybody a lot of time. And both sides end up quite satisfied with their, with their result because that's the reality. That's what happened. What are some of the new things or what are some of the wins from your customers that you're getting? So it's actually, it's a good mix of both the real time and the historical data. So change order claims, this kind of stuff. That's something that we see several times a week. So requests from the GCs, let me know how much time was really spent on those activities. And then they're having those discussions and wrap those up quite quickly. And the day to day. So we like to look at agenda as a digital assistant first, the superintendent, the super is walking the side, getting the insights. This is the activities that are taking place. These are the punch items or hazards you have around you. So really helping them make better decisions. So those are the main things we see. I love that. Everybody in this space needs a digital assistant, right? Where can people go to learn more about Genda? 
So the best way to find us is through our website at agendatech.com. I'm a construction guy myself, and I always like speaking with other construction professionals. So reaching out to me via LinkedIn, I'd be happy to chat with anyone. And we're back. All right, Nathan, take us away, man. What do you got today? Oh, man, I was having so much FOMO looking at all the photos last week at uh, yourself and others at Audience University. I, I did find this uh, uh, article here from Construction Dive uh, about the, their five takeaways. And, and no, none of it had to do with the event or, or New Orleans. We can talk about that later. But more on the product side, um, I think uh, a couple of things coming out of this uh, that I thought were notable. Um, shout out to uh, Todd Sutton at uh, Zachary. I know he's a big twin motion uh, fan and the Unreal Engine and kind of where things are going with that intersection of um, virtual virtual reality and uh, and BIM. So excited to see that partnership between Epic and Audios Construction Cloud. Um, another notable one uh, for those on the electrical side was Schneider Electric. Um, those looking to get more of that uh, electrical load and electrical design for uh, sustainability projects that are asking for more of that detailed data. Uh, they're they just announced uh, some some integrations uh, as well as to to share more of that um, design load and other data. So interesting stuff to see that. You know, there is the ability to share high quality data. <laughs> it's just, you know, getting the industry <laughs> to, to turn that stuff on and that, yeah, technology is not the barrier. It's it's uh, the individual, the business and the public policy that gets in the way. So exciting stuff on that. Yeah, well, and I, I'm kind of with you on the on the takeaways. I think the Epic Games and the Unreal Tournament or Unreal Engine, Unreal Tournament, that shows you that that was one of the games I played, which is where the engine came from. <laughs> Showing your age. Uh, so if yeah. you didn't know what I was, you do now. <laughs> what about <that> again? <laughs> but that... <laughs> Unreal Tournament, which is where the Unreal Engine got its start. And if you look up when that came out, yes, that's when I was a PC tech and let's just not go there. All right. I got enough gray. I get it. Um, this is why people in construction listen to me though these days. <laughs> no, but I, we've, we've said for a long time and we've dorked out on the Dorkcast about this a lot is that I think, you know, with Revit where it is and what it's going to be. And, and Autodesk did say a little bit around that, like, hey, we're not going to fundamentally change this thing. Well, okay. So sometimes you're not going to fundamentally change things. How are you going to amplify it? Well, it's these, it's these integrations. It's these abilities to use 3D gaming engines to do more with the data, with Revit, um, and to push the boundaries of where we're going. I, I think eventually, someday, we will design building information models in 3D in gaming engines completely. And I, and I don't think I'm the first one to think of that. I know I'm not. In fact, I know it, it, it's kind of out there a lot. I thought the Schneider Electric stuff was awesome. Um, and then I, you know, I think you're going to see this in later in my news too, Nathan, is the EarthCam integration. I think mm -hmm. you're going to see more and more of the reality capture, the understanding in Google Maps of where you are on a construction site, integrating into, like David said, it brings you back to the model. It brings you back to other things. It starts to connect dots. So, and, I, you know, I think there's, we're in the midst of a race for who's going to win in that, uh, you know, let's call it reality capture. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I spent a lot of time with Pharaoh while I was there and talking about hollow builder and their new, you know, flatness, you know, you can check out our, by the way, if you want to check out a cool recap of AU, just listen into the recent Dorkcast. Um, we did it right from the floor there. We had a good time recapping what we saw. But for me, it was like layering reality capture to make laser scans, to make, all of those things more accessible to everyone 
depending on what your thing is. Some of us just need to see where something is and can't really understand a point cloud or can't really understand and don't need the measurements, et cetera. So, and I, you're seeing a race. It's, it's a little teaser to where we go. David, I know you're kind of really interested in that, in that area. Anything mm-hmm. from the takeaways? I know you didn't have a chance to go to AU, but anything in the takeaways here that you were thinking? Yeah, no, really interesting about using video game engines to kind of start building out these BIM models. Because what some companies have started doing, and it's again a couple articles here, is that they're able to use augmented reality in conjunction with BIM modeling and the worksite to actually see, help the construction workers actually visualize what's supposed to be built and where it's supposed to go. And so for those who aren't familiar, augmented reality is really just kind of the concept that you can take your phone out and have a camera take a picture of something or take a video of something and they're able to kind of um, build like computer like images on top of that. And so for example, if you're on a construction site and you're supposed to build a wall over here, you could actually theoretically bust out your phone, take you know a video of that area and it'll actually tell you what's supposed to be built, how high, you know, how deep, things like that. It's able to actually improve that process, right? And I think, you know, with <clears throat> as VR, like virtual reality gets more and more kind of normalized, you'd be able to not just look at a construction site and say, hey, this is where it's supposed to go, but actually start to build out these models using like a virtual reality headset and like your hands and all and say this is where i want to go this is where i want to specify so on and so forth and i really think that again as that technology starts to develop it'll really start to change how we do construction because again it's not so much like i have this piece of paper that tells me what it's supposed to look like it's no i can actually see that in front of me and i can manipulate and actually work with the environment and have it more of like an integrated sort of process versus like, yeah, pen and paper and my eyes, right? It's, you know, pen and paper plus my eyes, plus all these other technology tools in place. It's awesome. Yeah. What else you got for us, Nathan? Well, I was going to say, yeah, why, why does my phone have three cameras on it? It's for exactly that use case because oh, yeah. you know, the <laughs> AR, ARK enables you to do these things. And yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of times we don't, we don't connect that together. But <clears throat> while I was not at Audius University, I was in uh, Washington, D.C. at the National Institute of Building Sciences uh, had their uh, annual conference. And uh, there's a construction dive article that came out about uh, the talk that uh, Connor Christian with Procore and Rachel Riappel with HDR and myself uh, gave as a summary from a summit that we gave or a summit that we had in June that was really all about BIM and, and all these opportunities for data and collaboration and sharing. And then at the same time, you've got cybersecurity and, and Nick Espinoza and the, all these you know very real world scare tactics that cause us to not necessarily want to collaborate or share. And so like, <laughs> where, where do we, you know, where's the rub in this? And, and so Construction Dive did a great kind of summary of, of what we talked about, what some of the findings were from that workshop in June, um, how, how things are changing, uh, especially on the public owner side with uh, the cyber ser- cybersecurity maturity model certification, CMMC, say that 10, t- 10 times fast, <laughs> uh, but uh, all kinds of new words and new things that I was learning from a cybersecurity side. But I actually frankly think that cybersecurity will be an interesting kind of point of data quality or, or one of those kind of bottlenecks or those ga- gateways that we have to go through um, and can actually use that to our advantage um, so that the, the pressures and the importance of cybersecurity and, and data privacy will actually enhance uh, the quality of BIM. Uh, but we have to figure out where that rubber meets the road and, and how open or how closed we need to be. And, and the answer is going to be different on, on every project. So um, great to see those things are, are moving forward and, and excited that NIBS uh, has taken that on that initiative and excited to support them as CPC. Yeah, no, I think it's great to see NIBS do this. And, and I think security is something we can't move forward without thinking about. But I think classically, we've used it as a roadblock, Nathan, as a reason not to move forward. And right. I think we, we have to stop thinking about that. I was at... Um, talk, which by the way, we're going to have a, I'm going to have a a episode on that coming up here with, with a couple of folks from there. But uh, I watched Aaron Geiger um, get up there and talk about, you know, 
Albarisi's approach to this and and how they're doing it. They did it with Ignite and they're talking about compartmentalizing. One of the things that we look at when we look at security is we're like, oh, well, we got to, you know, we got to do everything all the time. And it's like, well, no, it's like you said, different projects, different levels. CMMC is a pretty tight thing to do, but you can be CMMC compliant in a portion and a project if you know how to use virtualized technology, use utilize those tools that exist there. So like Aaron and the team was using that with Ignite for certain CMMC projects to do that. Security is always seen as overhead too, Nathan. And I, what I read into this was if I was the CIO of companies that are chasing FedRAMP jobs, you know, federal work, that kind of thing, I can actually now increase my security posture and abilities as a strategic advantage to say, listen, I'm not only going to give you a collaborative environment that's going to be productive, it's going to be secure and I'm going to do that better than anybody. And that's by getting those best in breed tools. That's by using it. So it's another way to take what is normally considered an, a necessary evil and turning it into a positive. And, and, you know, those are the things. And if you don't think CMMC is headed your way, if you don't think cybersecurity is real, well, there's certain problems I can't fix. And well, it is what it is, right? <laughs> so, just keep that in the sand. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like, I, somebody, so I saw this on Twitter about somebody talking about a customer and like, what do you do if they don't see it? And it's something around generative design. And basically all the other companies were like, it's just not your customer, man. It's just not your Huckleberry. Like, move on. It's okay. You know, somebody else, somebody else will dig it. So yeah. So yeah, we got we got to be ready for a little bit of that. I'm sure you come across that, David, in in your world where it's like, you know, I think you're great, but this is gonna work. We'll just, you know, we'll just yeah. go, we'll just move on. We'll see you later. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not you, it's me. I, I, I promise. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, a few, funny thing is I have a future. We're going to be doing some changes over here at the crew. And, and actually the consultant I'm working with said that to me. He goes, did you just say it's not me? It's not you. It's me. And I was like, yeah, well, I have a 14 year old. Like I say that a lot right now. Okay. Give, I hear it a lot. All right. Um, well, uh, we, di we digress. I got to get through my last one quick. But we had a little fun. Jump through your lesson. What's your last one? All right, fine. We'll make this one quick. Uh, I did think it was uh, interesting and timely again with with uh, Hurricane Ian coming through and, and all these questions around code changes and, uh, and sustainability of buildings. So this NPR article, uh, I'll just read the title here, One Florida Community Built to uh, Weather Hurricanes Endured Ian with Barely a Scratch. So the um, storyline here is essentially that if you do the right things that are, yes, more expensive to put all your elect uh, electrical wiring underground and uh, to, you know, fortify uh, for, you know, the wind loads and things like that. But you can actually live in beautiful, sunny Florida that does deal with occasional hurricanes um, and actually weather the storm and, and make it through. But uh, I think it goes to the point of uh, here in Colorado going through a, a, a permitting and co-change for a residential project and, and seeing how uh, increases in uh, insulation requirements and other things, you know, they do add costs, but at the same time, they add value too. And so back to the whole ROI calculation, I think our industry as a whole has been very short-minded uh, in, in a lot of these decisions. And so I think it's uh, cool to see that there are these success stories of communities that are investing in uh, the long haul and uh, showing that they can weather the storm, literally. Yeah, no, they can weather the storm. And, and I think this was an interesting one because look at what's happening in Florida right now with the investments 
that they're going to need to make to recover and get back, right? So yeah, do you build back the same or do mm-hmm. you build back this more expensive way after learning this? Well, mm-hmm. and if you build back the same, then you end up in the same thing. We keep spending this money over and over again. We keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Like mm-hmm. that's the definition of insanity. And uh, you can fight climate change and talk all about it if you want and have a political discussion around it. But ultimately, storms are getting harder. Things are getting crazier. These things are happening more often. They're very predictable. We have data models that tell us that. Mm-hmm. So why not when we're rebuilding do things like this? And it's good for the environment. I mean, they're using solar power that's not only just powering them, but it's feeding back into the grid. They've created roads that run the wa- that uh, move the water off. They holding ponds, etc. I mean, literally, he said his lights flashed a few times. You know, he said he experienced 100 mile an hour winds. Look, it's 30 miles in. It probably wasn't. But look, you know, if I jump off a 20 foot cliff, I'm going to tell you it was 40. So again, that's that human. We're just not good at predicting. So expect. And we're all good drivers. Yes. Expect that, you know, hey, it was 50 mile an hour winds, but you know, they lost a couple of trees. They lost a couple of plants, but the community itself was built differently. It took an investment up front, but right now they're not taking any of that federal money to recover. Not that taking federal money to recover is a bad thing, especially because historically these things are old, but it's when we reinvest that money now, what do we do with it? Do we do it better? Yeah, we should. We should do it better. I mean, we were in New Orleans for AU, right? And that city could use, when it gets reinvestment and it gets this money, to do some things that could change the way its infrastructure does moving forward. And that's not a knock on it, uh, on New Orleans at all. It's just a mind shift, you know? And we, we have to make those mind shifts. I'll say, and not, not to kind of uh, to call it get too off track here, but what do you think is the biggest challenge kind of in that mind space there, where it's how do you move from, oh, we've always done it this way to, hey, this actually works better, even though it costs more, right? I think that's a problem in like every industry and kind of everyone faces. But what do you think is that biggest mental hurdle that you kind of have to overcome to actually make that change? Because kind of for me, it's like, you know, New Year's hits, oh, I'm going to go on a diet, right? And I'm going to change how I live my life and be so much healthier. But it's like, I still have that mental hurdle. And I think that a very similar hurdle exists. in when you're rebuilding these types of communities and reinvesting in all that. And so what do you think needs to be addressed for that to actually become a movement? Oh, I have a good one, I think. But go ahead, Nathan, you have one. My one word answer is going to be trauma. In all truth, because if it's the health answer, it's you go through yeah. a traumatic event that causes you yeah. to change your diet or change whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or in financial, like financial trauma causes you to do this. So that, I mean, I was going to go to the insurance angle on this of, of like mm-hmm. how much are less are these new communities paying in insurance premiums? Like how do you look at more of a holistic and how do you create incentives? The re- reason mm-hmm. a lot of people do solar panels or buy electric cars is well, one, because Teslas are cool, but two, because they're getting mm-hmm. tax incentives and they're yeah. getting credits back. And so what is the role of public policy to help mm-hmm. us do the right thing and not incentivize fossil fuels and other things that we recognize are a necessary evil for a certain period of time? Or we can even say, even saying that, you know, it's, we're already admitting to it and not, you know, succumbing to the new mindset. But yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that, that's the battle that we all have to mm-hmm. deal with is what's going to be our own motivator and how does that lead us to vote for the right policies and, and do the mm-hmm. right things that will ultimately change the, the cultural paradigm. Interesting. I'll switch it back to you, David, because I think it's using data to get out of what, what's commonly referred to and is going to be in one of my future articles here down the road. It's called presentism. Mm-hmm. Like we highly, uh, we, we underrate risk that's coming mm-hmm. ahead. We really look at the current, we really look at the end of our nose and we're not looking out on the edge. And as we use data to inform total cost, 
of what mm-hmm. the impacts of the changes are. And we get out of this cost, cost, cost mentality. Mm-hmm. And we start to look at, I don't want to call it total cost ownership or ROI, but it is like the TCO of the building itself. It's yeah. what impact it has on the environment, what impact it has in sustainability for a particular amount of time and being honest about what the future is. Like mm-hmm. we get so caught up politically right now in arguing yeah. that we're not really looking at like, and I say this on stage all the time. It's like, I don't want to argue with how you got here. Yeah. We're here. Okay. What we can do is impact where we go. And what mm-hmm. we can do is use data to help us get there mm-hmm. and realize that risk is real, realize that these things are going to happen and then make an adjustment for it. Nathan, mm-hmm. you're probably more right than me. Trauma's probably what's going to do it. Cause look, <laughs> I don't listen until you, I don't listen until you <laughs> slap me over the head sometimes either. So uh, all right. You have the correct strategy, but I have the right motivator. Yeah. yeah, all right. I like it. Strategy and motivation together. Well, I'm going to have this duality here in my news. So we're going to start with uh, newcision.com, Hexagon. Uh, Avir joins Hexagon, strengthening Hexagon's ability to intelligently power the construction industry with smart digital realities. Okay, that's a big title. But what is it? It's another one of the large players investing in the ability to leverage uh, reality capture. What Avier does a fantastic job of taking in your laser scans, your um, 360 videos, anything you've got from site capture like we were talking about earlier, comparing it to the BIM model through their their platform and giving you uh, information back on quality, on where things are out of tolerance and doing it in a way that's automated. So it's happening in real time. So people come home at night, go home at night, relax, come in in the morning and they, and they have this superpower of knowing where the problems already exist, where they need to go focus their day. And Avir is a really incredible platform in this. And there's others in this space to me this was Hexagon getting involved in this race. And I love a good arms race, man, because a good arms race in technology sharpens the spear. It means people are going to have solutions to go after and they're going to have ones that fit their niche, right? How do you, how do you separate yourself as we go forward? Right now it's a, it's a, you know, a merger, but eventually it will be targeted at certain things. You will see these things that Autodesk has done around EarthCam going one way. You'll see the things that Hexacon's now doing around Avier going maybe another way um, to solve industry problems. And that's going to give people a choice to go different places. Plus, look, you have shops in our world that are Autodesk, that are Procore, that are uh, Hexagon. Name the other players. They're, you know, they're Trimble. So I think all those folks got to go out and get those things too. So this is just another way to to round out good choice. So, you know, Nathan, you've seen a lot of these come and go. What, are, what were your thoughts when you saw this one? Well, I mean, it's exciting. I mean, congratulations to, to Veer. And I think, yeah, like the, whether it's Reconstruct, whether it's a Veer, whether they're all these different kind of reality capture aggregation platforms, it, it's going to be the future. And I think you, you brought up the great point that as every all these big players build their arsenals, um, and, and there's a great you know consumer example of that, of, of the Googles and the Apples and the Microsofts of the world, and mm-hmm. you know which ones were able to build their own phones and which ones weren't, and which ones mm-hmm. you know have sustainable operating systems and which ones don't and like not everybody can win at every game but they're still trying to play the game in all those different fields and and are Mm -hmm. at least a leader in one of them and so Mm -hmm. that's the way i always explain it like everybody you know if you look at august trimble hexcon they all came from a different place and so that's naturally going to be their inherent bias or expertise or whatever as they try and take over the whole environment and as long as they're recognizing that they may want to be everything to their customer that picks them but on a project 
you're always going to have different customers that may or may not pick you. And if you can't talk to their system, you're out of the game. It's like saying, mm -hmm. I can't check my Gmail on my iPhone. And like, that would just be silly. Like, of mm -hmm. course, you're going to have a, a Google app on your iPhone, but it doesn't mean they allow everything to cross. And so it's, mm -hmm. it's a weird duality, right? Like that both sides have their own competitive markets that we have to be, you know, empathize with, but we have our own mess to deal with in the industry. Dude, I, I love that. And you've always used that. And we've always used those, those analogies, but just saying what you said about the Gmail one, I think is interesting because I can use the Gmail app on my phone, or I can actually use the native Apple mm -hmm. mail on my phone to integrate to my Gmail. And I have both I can choose from. Mm -hmm. And so in this war, those folks have realized, and these are much larger companies, the ones we're talking about, have realized that the interoperability, the ability to give the end user the choice of the experience is going to drive the platforms. And, and, you know, we might not have to, they don't have to like each other. I am not telling you guys that you don't have, that you like Apple has put out stuff about Microsoft for years. Microsoft put stuff out about Apple for years, but they both play well together because they're forced to by the users. So don't think I'm telling you y'all got to be friends and sing Kumbaya, but I better have, you know, Hexagon and Autodesk and others working on right. here well, together and I, when I'm on a project. Only because you just said it. So that's a great CDX definition example that we've now come to an understanding of, of your Gmail may be your system of record that you hold all your email in, but the application that you use, the gear, it could mm -hmm. be the Apple's mail or it could be the yep. Gmail app. And so mm -hmm. there's a difference between the application that you use to interface with a system and the system itself. And the decoupling yep. of that is an important mm -hmm. mindset shift for the industry. That's great. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on it, David? You're, you're, oh, you're sure. in. Yeah, this is your world. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I think that's really, Nathan, you just kind of drove that point home for me where it's like, yeah, you, you have to be able to break down that process into its individual components to find opportunity, right? Because if I'm like a developer, I'm like, oh, well, the mail thing, that's just one spot. It's the Gmail, that's the whole thing, right? Then I'm not able to break it down and say, hey, maybe I can build a better mail application, right? Because all I know is that it's just one piece. And so I think, again, in every industry, particularly in construction, if you're able to break down that problem into actual tangible components, then you can start to say, hey, like there's a spot here where I can make it a little bit better. And a spot over here, I can make it better, right? And I think that, just like you said too, you know, the more companies that are aware of all those different components and areas of improvement, the more they compete, the more they compete, the more options you have. And as a consumer, then you're like, okay, I can pick the one that best suits what I need. And I think that hit the nail on the head there. I agree. And I think we're going to move on to another one here because I'm starting, I'm going to rename conference season to acquisition season because we're moving into acquisition season because as they go to their big conferences, they want to announce their recent acquisitions. And, and this one was interesting. You know, this is a uh, Harvard Business Review article about exit strategies, why founders are afraid to talk about exit strategies. And this is talking about technology founders that are really not talking about their exit. And for me, this wasn't necessarily about the founders themselves and the process there. But I think if you are a founder out there or you are getting into that space, this is a great article to listen to and read. And if you're an investor, you know, I spend a lot of time with the the groups that the venture capitalists that are working in our world. And this talks about how those two entities can have great conversations about exit strategies and how they can be utilized to not prevent, you know, taking moonshots and going big and, you know, et cetera. But for me, what I, what, what I hit, and we were all talking about this before you go on, is there's just like this unnecessary fear around companies being acquired and not wanting to buy software or be a part of those. And, you know, when a company you're using gets acquired, you're looking at it negatively. 
Well, when you look at the history of this, for every IPO a year, there's 30 acquisitions, right? And this is a process that continues to grow. If it wasn't successful on a regular basis and more successful than not, it wouldn't be a strategy teams are using. Yes, we hear about the ones when you somebody buys a technology and the acquisition doesn't go well. Those things happen, but they are actually the exception, not the norm. And I want people to start to think about this as a positive thing. You know, we've talked about it when you got Hexagon doing what they're doing. You've seen Autodesk buy a lot. You've seen Procore buy a lot. We're going to see more of that, right? You're actually seeing this in the construction business. Does, does someone going out and buying up mechanicals, electricals, and plumbers and putting them under one roof a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. Like, it's the convergence of technology. It's the convergence of IP. It's all of those things, but we're really blind to that. And I, and I think we're afraid to talk about it at times because there's this fear that, you know, um, you can't be optimistic. You can't shoot for the moon. You can't keep growing uh, a company and think about, Hey, will, will I IPO or will I exit? Like, you can think about those two things. And in fact, if you do it correctly, and this article really covers it really well, is if you do that process really, really well, you're going to end up in a situation where you're actually going to have to make a really hard decision, hopefully, around, hey, I got these people that want to acquire me or I want to IPO. Now I got an opportunity to make a real hard, real good decision and, and be optimistic. And I think investors need to look at that. But for me, I've heard this far too often recently is like people actually judging software companies on whether or not they may or may not get acquired. First of all, they may or may not know. Okay. That, that's just this honest, even if you're planning the best, well, the blessed laid plans rarely ever come true. Okay. So something to think about and something to think about positivity. I'm always, I'm a technology optimist and, you know, we just talked about building all of those machines and, you know, Nathan, we've been around a long time and seen a lot of companies go through these processes it's not always fun and it's not always perfect, but I think it's, you know, and, and think outside of construction, you know, it's, it's very successful. In fact, there's tons of applications and tons of things that you don't realize that were acquired at one point that are now just part of the tool sets that you use. You know, that's just the way this thing is. So, I mean, I just threw that out there. I love my venture capitalists. I love the folks in the business. I love the founders in this business. Hey, by the way, to all the founders in this business, we love y'all because you know you're pushing the boundaries. Um, I've made lots of great relationships with a lot of you, and you know this was to support y'all as well. Like it, it's about educating you guys too. So um, take a look at the article. Tell me what you think. Hit me up on the socials. Hit me up anywhere and and talk to me about it. But Nathan, what are your thoughts on it before we get rolling? I mean, I think a lot of folks ask that question and, and are too forced to answer very early on of like, what's your path? And it's like, well, yeah, why do you have to answer one or the other? Again, I, there's a reason I don't sit in that seat, but as, as one that talks and, and, and advises to them, um, I think that uh, it's, it, I, I'm, I'm a fan of transparency personally, but I also understand that in the business world, there are reasons why you do and do not disclose certain information to certain folks at sure. certain times. So I, I, I understand the complexity of it. And I would never claim to be an expert. Um, but uh, I think the more that we can, yeah, be transparent, especially at the higher levels of where folks are at and be okay with that ambiguity. Um, and, and at least, you know, be clear on the measurements, right? <laughs> Back to David's point, yeah. if we're clear on what the measurements of success are, then who cares which way we go uh, at the end? It all comes down to perception too, right? And I think perception and dealing with the kind of cognitive bias that people just have where, yeah, if your goal is to get acquired, then are, is your goal then to just 
build something that works just enough to sell it and then you move on to the next big thing? Or are you really proud of what you're building? Do you have confidence that it works? And that's why you want to get acquired because you know it fits so well into an existing framework, right? So I think, again, kind yeah. of like back to your early conversation, it's just about shifting your kind of your perception, shifting that kind of mental state of where you are to not just look at like, well, why would you, wouldn't you do it? But more so, why would you do it? Right? What are the advantages there? Mm-hmm. That's a great construction analogy real quick, because yeah. there are project owners that are in it for the long haul that you mm-hmm. pitch projects differently than the developer owner that just wants to build it to sell it. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. you can't sell these long-term sustainability things to a developer that just wants to build it and sell it. And so just yeah. understanding who your customer is is half the battle, exactly. right? Oh, yeah. But that's why we're looking at new things like ESG that change how you measure that so that that developer is incentivized to create something better. And I think that's where you can flip it and say, tell me how I'm measured and I'll show you how I act. Hey, look, that's one that we can do there to push the way forward. And, you know, David, you hit something I didn't even think about. It's like, a lot of times, it, yeah, it's looked like a fire sale opportunity and it's really not. It's because somebody's a founder and all of a sudden they've opened up their eyes to like, wow, we fit really well and we can amplify our impacts. And I think that's where most of them are going. So, hey, I want everybody to check it out and, you know, give it a read. I think it's, uh, and, you know, ultimately I'm going to go to a Rick Con here as we close it. What's your plan? Well, are you planning to be acquired? Are you planning to be to IPO? Yes. And. <laughs> It's yes and. I'm going to plan for both things because ultimately also that's a great business strategy, mm-hmm. right? That's resiliency of a great business strategy. And as we go into the unknown, it's a great time to have that. So, hey, look, I think we could talk to David forever, but we have hit that time. <laughs> David, thanks so much for sitting in the seat and joining me today. Oh, no. Thanks so much for having me. It's just been a blast. Just chatting, kind of brainstorming and knocking ideas around. No, thanks so much. Yeah. I suggest everybody go go hook up with David. Uh, get him on LinkedIn. Um, you, we'll have the links to it in the show notes for you. Yeah, David, I'm reaching out. We're going to be having a virtual roundtable on machine learning. So we'll, oh, yeah. we'll, we'll continue the discussion. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. You're, you're getting pulled in, man. You're yeah, one of those ones ready. we're going to pull in. Yeah, I got me. You Just got CDX'd. Yeah, I got CDX'd. you right, right. CDX'd. I'll get it tattooed on my shoulder there next time. Ooh, that's a good idea. Uh, just wear a hat. Yeah. <laughs> Nathan Wood, thank you as usual for sitting in and, and riding along with me and, and geeking out, man. Thank you. Always great to be along for the ride. Awesome. All right, man. Well, you have a great weekend. Everybody listen in and have a great weekend. Thank you for tuning in today to Geek Out for episode 329, our interview with David Jun from Olson Consulting. To read all of our news stories, learn more about apps, workflows, and hardware, and to listen into the show, visit thecontactcrew.com. This is the Contact Crew signing out. Until next time, enjoy the ride and geek out.